Shall we make a start? Um, I'm going to tell you a story, actually, before we start. So yesterday, a few of us went out and did um, treasure hunting. So I don't know whether you've heard about treasure hunting. So in a nutshell, treasure hunting is where you spend some time praying, you ask God for some insights and pictures, but particularly some clues like where, location, um, what the person's wearing, what their needs are, and even their name. So anyway, we, a few of us, about 10 of us, I think, got together, prayed, and then went out into Wall's End to look for treasure. So Wayne and I were off doing our thing, and one kind of word that we had was um, a park bench or a bench near in the center of Wall's End, and we knew exactly where it was, and a blue coat. So we went into that place, and sure enough, there was a guy sat on the bench wearing a blue coat. Wow, amazing. So we went up to him, started chatting to him, and um, he was emotional. Um, it turns out um, that a few weeks ago, Jeff and Tom, um, on a Tuesday when our staff team sometimes go out and do stuff as well and talk to people, that actually they had spoken to that guy already. And he said, oh, you're from that church near the park. So anyway, that was a good start. So we started to chat to him. We were able to listen to his story. Um, I said, I don't mind, do you mind if I ask what your name is? And he said, oh, my name is Brian. So I was like, wow. Well, actually, I'm just going to show you this piece of paper, Brian, because we've actually written your name down on this bit of paper. His eyes were wide. And he said, well, you know, I've been, I'm really lonely and depressed. So I got my bit of paper out again and said, well, you know, one of the things we thought we'd be praying for is loneliness and depression. His eyes got wider and wider. And we were just able to say to him, we were able to listen to him and just say, look, God sees your circumstances. God sees your, your life. He sees the stress, the worry, the nervousness, and the kind of just all that's going on in life. And he says, um, you're not on your own. And he sent Tom and Jeff a few weeks ago, just to, when he was feeling low, we were just able to encourage him then. And he sent us today because he loves you. And he wants you to know that. And the guy was emotional in a good way and just felt really seen by God. So I was, we were just blown away, weren't we? It was just an amazing, an amazing morning. And that's just one of a few stories of what happened yesterday. So I just thought I'd share that. Just lift. I know. I, I think it's so good. It is so good. And you know, it's so easy for you to do. All you have to do is get a piece of paper, spend five minutes praying, ask God for the location, um, something about the appearance, name, and then what to pray for, and then just go looking for them. You don't need an organized event to do it. Why don't we just do it all as a church? Wouldn't that be amazing if every week we were all off treasure hunting for those that God wants to just tell them that he sees their life? Anyway, I thought I would share that. Wonderful. Well, I better get on with my talk, otherwise we're never going to get finished. Um, okay. Technology has developed it at a staggering rate over the last 30 or so years. Um, it's hard to believe that um, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, I think that's how you pronounce his name, invented the World Wide Web 32 years ago. Amazing. Back in 2019, Jennifer Aniston, um, of Friends fame, um, she started an Instagram account, and in three days, she had 13 million followers. 
<laughs> in about 13 years, I've got about four followers. Um, anyway, <laughs> we won't go there. It, it's hard to comprehend life without the internet, without social media, the plethora of technology that has been born out of the World Wide Web. All of the good things that now happen because of Tim Berners-Lee invention. However, you know, there is a dark side to the web, isn't there? And not just literally a dark side, but just a dark side to the normal web. You know, social media is not all good. The National Crime Prevention Council suggests that a massive 43% of children have experienced online bullying. 43%. I came across an interesting research paper entitled Social Media Ostracism, the Effects of Being Excluded Online. The paper describes the impact of what is now called cyber ostracism. I said it. I was struggling to say that yesterday. Anyway, I've said it today. In times of, this is what it says, in times of being always online and connected, cyber ostracism, the feeling of being ignored or excluded over the internet is a serious threat to fundamental human needs, belonging, self-esteem, control, and meaningful existence. You know, we've seen Donald Trump, among many others, use Twitter not just to disagree, but to personally attack people. In fact, this culture of personal attack, body shaming, fashion expectations, you know, you're not wearing the right clothes, um, that's been my life. Um, critique of the person, not just what they do, but also how they look, is ingrained in our society. Is my post, my tweet, liked or not? Um, what do people say? What, are there comments? Are they good or bad? I noticed yesterday, I think it was, that YouTube have actually decided to remove the dislike button from their videos, um, which is probably a positive step. You know, social media continues to exacerbate this culture. You know, we see people become famous on YouTube. Um, we see people making a living and out of being popular on Instagram and Twitter and those sorts of platforms. We see people being held up as role models because of the way they look, with little thought of what they do. Anthropologists, again, another word I couldn't say yesterday and I've been able to say today, happy days, call this type of culture honor-shame culture. The truth is we all like to be liked. We all enjoy people saying nice things about us. The problem we have in today's society is that bullying, cyberbullying, ostracism, and cyber ostracism, you know, social media likes and comments, and many other parts of our wider culture mean that our identity, our self-worth, our self-esteem, belonging are all too often correlated to what people say about us. For many years, I was a secondary school teacher. Um, quite a long time ago now, I, I, but I was. For about 10, 11 years, I taught as a secondary school teacher. I worked in some challenging schools with some pretty extreme behaviors. But I remember one thing I was taught as a, when I was in teacher training, um, and it's always stuck with me, not just in a school environment, but in life. And that's separate the child from the behavior. Set the, separate the child from the behavior. Jeff, 
punching Tom in the face was not good behavior. <laughs> you, you, let's hope he's not done that at Marley Hill this morning. You have so much more potential than that. No, rather we say this, Jeff, you are, you know, this is how society might say it. Jeff, you are such a bad boy for punching Tom in the face. Subtle but profoundly different. One leaves Jeff believing that I think he is bad. A shame culture. The other leaves Jeff thinking that it was just his behavior that was bad. Honestly, such a difference when you talk to young people and you separate their behavior from them as an individual. Unfortunately, in our Western society, we are predominantly seeing a resurgence of a shame culture. You know, in the workplace, at school, online, pretty much anywhere, there is a shame culture. You know, is there any wonder why the UK is the loneliness capital of Europe? And we have such identity issues. You know, the shamed get dishonored and, and disempowered and become weaker. And the honored get empowered and become stronger. Honor and shame in a secular world. You know, one moment of shaming can shape our whole life. I was listening um, a couple of years ago now it, to part of an interview with Elton John who I think at the time was age 76, and he told the reporter, I still want my dad's approval. I still want my dad's approval. And his dad had been dead for over 30 years. How do people react to this fear of shaming? Well, they might conform to fit in, and we see that all of the time. We might be tempted ourselves to do that. They might put up walls, play life safe, and avoid any situations where they could risk being shamed. Especially publicly. Vulnerability is mitigated. We have strategies to not become vulnerable. We try everything to avoid being vulnerable because we don't want to fail, get hurt, and shamed. Brenny Brown is a sociologist um, famous for her TED Talks on shame and vulnerability. Highly recommend going on to TED Talks and looking up Brenny Brown and watching her talks. They are amazing. And she said a few things. She said this, being vulnerable is central to wholehearted living. That's a sentence that I could unpack <laughs> in a whole other talk. Being vulnerable is central to wholehearted living. Vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability most accurately measures courage, innovation, creativity, and the ability to change. Profound stuff. And she goes on to explain that there is a negative correlation between vulnerability and shame. The greater level of shame we feel, the less vulnerable we are willing to be. And the less vulnerable we are, the less wholehearted life we lead. The impact of shame, pretty significant. And when you step back and think that 43% of young people are shamed online, so many young people start their journey 
living in a place of shame? How are they ever gonna live vulnerable, creative, expansive lives if that shame is not removed? And then there is God the Father, who in a beautiful moment honored his son Jesus, a counter-cultural moment, a counter-cultural God. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew 3, 17. So today we are going to continue our series, Overflow of the Heart, by looking at how we overflow with honor. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to take two minutes silence just for remembrance and honoring those that... um, gave their lives in to get our freedom. And then I'll carry on with my talk. To do that, we're gonna have a little litany, a time of reflection, and then a time of silence. So Father God, I thank you so much that in you, there is no shame. As we look at this subject today, which I feel is one of the most profoundly important subjects the church can look at, Would it deeply impact us, significantly change us, and completely kind of be embedded in the culture of this church? Amen. So just stay in a place of reflection. I'm just going to read this out. Today, on this Remembrance Sunday, we are going to journey through a short litany, prayer and a time of silence. We want to take a few moments to remember loved ones and family members who have lost their lives, those who have strived to bring peace to our world and those who have sacrificed their lives for the sake of ours. In doing so, we also want to focus this time on Jesus, the one who made the ultimate sacrifice. Let's show them all honor. In the quiet and stillness we remember, Amid all the things that compete for our attention, we remember. We remember everything that God has done for us and thank him for everything he has yet to do for us. We remember the ultimate price Jesus paid by dying on the cross. We remember how in that moment he took the sin of the world on his shoulders and paid for it with his life. We remember how he defeated death, rose again and is now seated on high. We remember how much of his sacrifice we no longer, we we remember how because of his sacrifice we no longer fear death. We remember that because of him we are no longer slaves to fear or shame. Amid all the things that compete for our attention, we remember in the quiet and stillness, we remember. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for his friends. O God of truth and justice, we hold before you those whose memories we cherish and those whose names we will never know. Help us to lift our eyes above the torment of this broken world and grant us the grace to pray for those who wish us harm. We honor the past. May we put our faith in the future for you are the source of life and hope now and forever. Amen.
Let's just take two minutes silence to remember those that made the greatest sacrifice for our freedom. Amen. Where there is a shame, where there is a shame, there is also honor. We do honor people, don't we? We honor sporting heroes. We honor those that gave their lives. We honor famous people, beautiful people, smart people, rich people, those that have done good things. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with honor and success. However, there is a problem with this limited understanding of honor because it, by default, brings about shame. So when we honor the successful, it is easy to shame those that have failed. When we honor famous people, it is easy to shame those that just seem a little bit ordinary. When we honor beautiful people, we inadvertently shame those society might suggest just don't quite make the mark. In ushering in the kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus demonstrated a new culture. Rather than an honor-shame culture, he instead shows us what it looks like to build an honor-honor culture, a culture of honor. So what does this culture look like? 1 Corinthians 12, this is Paul. You know, he captures in this amazing passage of Scripture what a culture of honor looks like and acts like. He uses this analogy of the body. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. 
And we are to build a different culture to that of the prevailing world. The first few verses tackle the issue of belonging. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part, stop being part of the body. Verse 15. Jesus, throughout his ministry, reached out and included those that were on the periphery of society. The outcasts, the ostracized, he touched lepers. He allowed a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years to touch him. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He stopped for the broken, the hurting and the sick. He stood up for the condemned and defended the persecuted. He was always inviting people to come to him, to follow him, to be part of the kingdom of God. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 18, verse 28. Jesus treated people equitably, and he invited them to find a place to belong. Paul tells us clearly that every part of the body has a right to belong. No matter what they are like, whether they are an ear or an eye, they are of equal value and worth, and they belong and are connected to each and every other part. A culture of honor is a culture that is inclusive. You know, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, we are all the same and have the same spirit and the same savior. Jesus' invitation is to come as you are. You know, the church should be the most diverse community that overflows in welcome, unity, and honor. You know, there was a moment in the history of this church, um, a very tricky and, and difficult moment for Nicola and I, um, but it shaped the church. You see, we used to run a, store, a ministry called Storehouse, and it was a ministry to the homeless. And um, from time to time, some of the homeless guys would come along on a Sunday morning. Well, this Sunday, I was in the middle of my talk like this, and a guy called John, um, who was carrying with him hurt and pain so much, and so he turned to alcohol to, to dampen that pain. And he came in, a little worse for wears, walked down, the, at that time he had a center aisle, he walked down the center aisle, and he stood in front of me, what do you do in a situation like that? Because he wasn't sensitive to the situation. He was oblivious to everyone else in the room. He was just kind of consumed by his pain. So what do you do? We had a choice. We could have got two of the bigger guys to remove him from the service. Or I could have passed the mic to somebody else and gone off and listened to his hurt and pain and prayed with him. Thankfully, I did the latter. And at the end, I stood up and I read out Isaiah 58. I'm not going to read it to you. Go away and have a read if you don't know it. And I basically said to the church, if John isn't welcome here, I'll be following him outside, out the door. Which was, for a pastor is quite a significant thing to say. But I meant it. And I would mean it today. John required special honor. John was desperate. He had been treated as less than human. 
Do you know, he, he used to tell us that he was kicked, spat on, even urinated on by those passing him by in doorways. Just unbelievable shame that was given to him by others. It's the role of the church to show him special honor. And Paul moves on to describe what I feel is like a crucial ethos statement for the church. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Wow. You know, how much does that just turn everything upside down? James gives us an example of how this culture of honor should work, or, or should I say, shouldn't work. My brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? To have removed John from the service would have been the equivalent to tell him to stand over there or sit at our feet. We would have shown favoritism to those that were more presentable at that moment. No, we gave him special honor and treated him as being indispensable. And of course he was. That's a culture of honor. We had a few complaints, as you could imagine. Um, it kind of messed with our sensibilities a little bit. But do you know what? Deep down, everyone knew that that was a kingdom of heaven moment. I think of stories like the prostitutes that broke the expensive perfume over Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. Or the lady who gave two copper coins that we read about in the Bible because Jesus, you know, that, that's an honorable story. You know, the woman caught in adultery that Jesus stood and defended. So many stories of Jesus welcoming the unpresentable and seemingly less honorable and giving them special honor. He often encouraged people like the woman caught in adultery to act in line with their royal identity. You know, he doesn't ignore sin. He does, doesn't ignore the things that we need to change. But just like I was taught in teacher training school, Jesus never, never uses our behavior to limit our worth. You are all, we are all infinitely valuable to Jesus, no matter what we do or what we look like. In the kingdom, in Jesus' church, it's an honor, honor culture. No one is special. That's because everyone is special. But God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 2,000 years ago, they didn't have social media. 
um, to facilitate a shame culture. But there was equally a shame on a culture in Jesus' time. You know, ostracization, bullying, inequality, injustice, elitism, prejudice were all present. I've always been present, sadly, in our culture. There was the in crowd and the out crowd, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, Jew and Gentile, men and women. In Jesus' life and teaching, we see him demonstrate a completely counter-cultural kingdom. We see a culture of honor, a culture of inclusion, instead of a culture of shame. Jesus chose the uneducated. He ate with the outcasts. He stopped for the ostracized. He spoke life, acceptance, forgiveness, identity and purpose and love into people's lives. He stood against those. He stood for those that were being persecuted and condemned. He stood between the accusers and the condemned. And he spoke life and honor and not shame. In the 21st century, we need to be a church that rediscovers honor. So how do we do that? Life Vineyard, how do we build a culture of honor? I want to suggest five things. There's a whole series of talks that we did a few years ago. So many ways we can do this, but five things that we can as a people, particularly as we emerge from the pandemic, honor each other and therefore demonstrate a different culture to the world around us. Romans 12, verse 9 and 10 says this. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That is, I just love that. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'm a boy, I like competitions. Um, And, um, you know, this is a competition. It's like, right, church, see who can outdo each other in showing honor. I love it. You know, it clearly shows that a culture of honor is not this passive sort of touchy-feely sort of thing. It's a, it's a dynamic. It's, it's, a, it's something we go after. It's something we work towards, that we chase after. You know, the prevailing culture is one of shame. The culture of the church needs to be one of honor. We need to be so careful because the prevailing world influences the church. And the corrupt sort of shame culture can creep in. We need to fight against that. And we need to learn to demonstrate honor to everyone in the church and beyond the church. So I want to finish with five ways we can do that. And I do need to come into land. Okay, firstly, radical invitation. Radical invitation. This guy on a bench, we invited him to come. Just come and be part of the church. There's a place for you to belong. You know, so many people have nowhere to belong. Or they only belong because they're trying to fit in. The church should be a place where people can come as they are. Whether they wear dirty old clothes and sleep in a doorway. Or whether they live in a mansion. It doesn't matter. All are equal. All are honored. And all have a place in the kingdom of God. We need to be a people who invite, who invite our world, invite our friends, invite the strangers that we bump into. 
We need to just invite because there's no better place to banish shame and to discover honor than in the body of Christ when it lives in the values that Jesus wants us to live by. Can we be a people who radically invite? Radically invite so that people can discover honor instead of shame, love instead of hate, life instead of death. Secondly, radical welcome. What happens when somebody walks through the door? A new person. Maybe you're new today and you're very, very welcome. We hope you found this. We've discussed on many occasions whether or not we should have a host team. Because there's something about it that kind of always jars with us. And this is why we shouldn't need a host team. We should be the host team. We should all be looking at the door and thinking, no, I've not seen that person before. I'm going to go and welcome them. I'm going to go and get them a coffee. I'm going to show them to their seat. I'm going to find out who they are. We shouldn't need it. We do for practical reasons. Somebody needs to make the coffee. Someone needs to shake somebody's hand at the door. Maybe not in the current climate, but, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, and, um, you know, we need... But church, we should be a people of radical welcome. We don't just come to church to be in our bubble. We come to church to be the body of Christ, gathered, welcoming, inclusive. We will have a host team. And you know what? We would love more people on the host team because we need a bit few more people to create a really radical welcome. But my hope and my dream is that we actually don't need a host team because we are all the host team. So we need a radical invitation and a radical welcome. Thirdly, radical service. Um, I, we were looking at a few stats a couple of weeks ago. There are 238 adults on our database, of which 77 are serving at our Sunday services. And those 77 are filling 150 serving slots. So in a, that's each month. So in a nutshell, what that means is every person serving is serving at least twice on two teams. Do you know, just like we um, want a radical welcome and everybody to be the host team, Nicola and I have always dreamt of a church where everyone serves each other. That's been our dream, you know, that everybody does their bit. Whether it's make the coffee, welcome people, be on kids' team, on the worship team, like Jeff just said, or PA and media. You know, you can think of all the different teams on a Sunday and in the week. You know, what does honor look like to those 77 people who have been serving their socks off since the start of September and long before? What would honor look like to them? How can we honor them? And there's one simple way we can do that, is we can choose to serve alongside them. We can choose to serve alongside them. We can give a little bit of our time. So I want a massive invite, and, and I'm gonna, heads up, I'm gonna send you all a text message with a little Google form. So if you're not on a team, expect to get that. Um, and we're gonna invite you to serve. Because the best, we want to honor those people by saying, what would it look like if 150 people served? 
and actually nobody had to serve on more than one team unless they chose to. Wouldn't that be amazing? So anyway, expect that. We need to outdo one another in showing honor. And we do that by serving each other, by inviting our world, by radically welcoming people. You know, I know we all have busy lives. And we're all probably sitting there thinking, I've got nothing else to give. So it might be all you can do is just be part of the host team. And that's not to belittle the host team, but you can stand at the door, smile, and say hello. It might be you have time to be on the kids' team, which is probably a little bit more involved. Or on the PA, and that requires some training, or the media team, likewise. But what a difference it would make if everybody did their bit. Fourthly, radical generosity. One of the things I miss the most since the pandemic is our bring and share lunches. Um, I used to love it. We used to have the tables set up and they were empty and then people would come and they would slowly put their bits on the table. And then by the end of kind of the morning, it was full of food. And some would bring crisps and cakes and drumsticks and pasta and slow cookers and all sorts of things. And it was just wonderful. But you know, it's the best analogy for the way the church should be in regards to generosity and honor. Everybody brought what they could and they put it on the table for everyone to share. It's just such a great analogy. And that's the way we should be with our resources and our money. You know, the Lord gives to us and he invites us to place our part on the table. You know, John Wimber said, ministry costs money. These buildings, you know, our ministries, our, all of our resources, our outreach, our all manner of things, it costs money. And God has given us the resources to give back to the church so that we can do what the Lord tells us to do. I would love us to be a church that, that personifies that bring and share lunch, that we are a bring and share family. Right, I do need to land and have time of worship. Sorry, Marley Hill. Finally, but probably most importantly, radical equality. You know, over the last few weeks, we've celebrated Black History Month. That was an amazingly profound moment with dedications and just so much going on. What a lovely morning that was. You may have seen on social media that the photo of our eldest member was 100, and our youngest member, I think, was zero. I don't think they'd even had their first birthday yet. Such a vast range of ages and stages and backgrounds in the church. We are a diverse group of people, and that's the way the body of Christ should be. Everyone is equal. Everyone is special. Everyone is invited by Jesus and is a son and daughter of the King. There is no place for inequality in the church and in God's kingdom. Favoritism and prejudice have no place in God's church. All people are made in God's image and worthy of great honor. We are to honor God by imitating his son and by showing radical equality. The root of honor is a knowledge that we are loved and accepted by Jesus. When we know who we are, we can let it overflow in honor 
to all those around us. You know, God tells us we have great value, we are worth dying for, that we are special, unique, designed and made by him. No one, you are not a mistake, no one is a mistake or of lesser or greater worth. No, we are all equal and we are all called to outdo one another in showing honor. Jesus wants honor to overflow from our hearts. You know, we are called by Jesus to demonstrate honor through radical invitation, welcome, service, generosity, and equality, because that's just what Jesus does for us. We need to rediscover honor, and we need to demonstrate it to those around us and those beyond the walls of the church. John and um, Adam, do you want to come and join us? So we're going to have a time of worship. Marley Hill, have a wonderful time. Just before you go, you probably just cut off at that point, um, three things I think the Lord wants to do in ministry at the end of worship. One is to deal with shame that is in your life, if you're carrying shame. The other is some of you believe you're a mistake, and the Lord wants to let you know you're not. And the other is that God wants to let you know just how valuable you are. So at the end of worship, can I encourage you to go into that a time of prayer and ministry around those three areas. And that's what we're going to do here.